Today in the garage, we have Jordana Goldless. Jordana is an experienced defense lawyer called to the bar in 2008. She has her own law firm, GHG Criminal Law. Her practice focuses on high-risk criminal litigation. We had a great time talking today about trials and how jury trials are exhilarating and her favorite part of being a lawyer. As she put it, it's where law meets theater. Whether you're driving your McLaren, shredding your Stratocaster, or prepping for a charter motion, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune up. Hi, Jordana. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. This is such a great idea to bring this to a podcast. Oh, thank you. Uh, I want everybody to understand, like, how serious of a lawyer. You're like a hero to me. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, 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 what kind of clients you're representing? Tell us about the caseload you have presently. So, I mean, my focus is on murders. So I typically carry anywhere from eight to ten murder files at a time. Um I do a few project cases. Uh, I probably have a few dozen drug cases on the go at any given time. These days, it's mostly fentanyl, uh, a little bit of cocaine, a little bit of heroin cases, but they're all, you know, significant quantities, significant substances, and most importantly for me is a significant risk. Like, that for me is what motivates. Um, And and so that's the caseload I have. It's back-to-back trials. I... Tell my clients, don't bother hiring me if you just want someone to plead you guilty really quickly. It's not my practice. It's not really what I aim for when I take on a case. You know, before we started the podcast, I was speaking to you and I, I, I referred to you with a term that I like. You're, you're a warrior. You're a true gladiator at the front lines. And you're someone that I look up to and, and I know so many others in the profession look up to. Um, how did you end up specializing if that's the word but how do you end up uh, with a practice that you have so i mean obviously i started off taking absolutely anything and everything um i started off with edward royal and associates and i worked within his firm for four years and he had just branched off from pinkovsky's we were four lawyers and ted uh, so it was this tiny firm, and within a few years, it grew to the behemoth of a firm that it is now with, you know, 30-plus lawyers. Um, but I learned what I enjoyed doing and, and the type of clients that I enjoyed working with. And for me, it was when I had to put in, you know, the really hard prep and sit down and figure out a defense. And I wanted those challenging cases. I guess for me, law has always been about finding that challenge. And so as we moved through the proceeding, like just moved through the practice and figured out what I enjoyed doing, um, I think it was probably two or three years into the firm that I did my first murder case. Uh, I was supposed to be junioring with Ted, and of course, in Ted Royal Styles on day three, he looked at me and said, you got this. And he, he walked away from the prelim and left me to finish it off. And I just, I enjoyed working with the client because for me, it was that sense of trust that you have to have. This is someone who's literally putting their life in my hands. And for me, I take on that responsibility very seriously um, because I think it's an honor. I think that when someone trusts you with their life, you owe it to them to put everything else on hold. Um, and so for me, it's sort of that sense of high risk. You're sitting at you know the, the precipice of criminal practice, I think. So when you, when, when you have a client come in, it's one of these large prosecutions, whether it's a drug offense or a homicide, 
Um, Let's talk about the file from start to, to finish. Sure. Um, they come in. It, 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 you know, I'm sure everybody's devastated around them who uh, come to see you uh, to help hire you for their family member. How do you approach it? So, I mean, my clients charged with murder aren't coming in to see me. They're calling me from the jail saying, I've, I've been charged with murder. Can you help? Um, the first thing I do is go to visit. I have never, and I refuse, and even in COVID, I took on a new murder file during this lockdown. I went to see the client in Maplehurst before I accepted the file. I know that the case is going to take two and a half, maybe three years. I need to know that I get along with the file, with the client. I need to know it's a file that I want. Is it the type of case that I want? And can me and the client build a relationship over the course of the next two and a half years that we can work together? Because not all personalities work together. And I tell everyone that's charged with murder who calls me, unless we have a pre-existing relationship, go interview other lawyers. Make sure that I'm the person that you want and the way that I practice is the way that you're going to be happy with. Um, and I think that helps build trust because I, I think that you need that solid foundation to build off of. I need to know that it's a client that I can work with. If we have personality clashes, it's not going to work. We're going to get to the prelim. He's not going to trust my decision-making. He's not going to trust what sort of the way that I want to lead the defense. Um, and you end up with a, a breakdown in the solicitor-client relationship that really is just a waste of everyone's time. But more importantly, it's you know a concern for the client at the end of the day. So information and transparency is sounds very paramount to creating a long-lasting relationship with the client. Because the worst thing that could happen is you the, you, you get the, uh, the the plug pulled just before preliminary inquiry or midway through a trial. It can be very difficult. So how do you ensure that that relationship is a good relationship? What kind of uh, boundaries do you set? What kind of expectation level do you set for the client? So I'm very clear that I am not a therapist. I'm not a life coach. I'm not here to help them make better decisions. I'm not here to fix their marriage. Uh, I'm not here to do anything other than defend the criminal case. I'm not a friend. And as much as I have clients that call me when they're angry and they're frustrated and they just, you know, vent for a minute, if I let every client do that with me, I would not have time to practice. I would literally be in a life coach seat at all times. So I set very clear boundaries from the first time we meet. And I say there are some lawyers who like that role. They want to help you live a better life. That's not my job. Uh, certainly my clients who sell drugs appreciate that talk because they don't want to be told you shouldn't be selling drugs. That's not my business. If that's what you do, that's what you do. And I'm not here to change that for you. Um, if I can help get the client through this particular situation in their life and they go on to lead a better life, that for me is a huge sign of success for both of us. And I've had that. I've had clients charged with murder. Uh, we've been successful in defending the murder. And I have one client in particular he has never been arrested again. He's taking care of his family. He's working. He is living you know, a pro-social life and is really uh, the epitome of a success story who's come through the justice system. So if that's the end result, most certainly I you know, am I'm proud of those results, but that's not the goal. The goal is to defend this particular case for this particular person. The success that I see, especially from listening to you now and in, in the past, is that it's a success for democracy, ensuring that the client gets a fantastic defense. Um, and so I want to talk to you about how you create that defense. 
because um, it, it is important for us to, as members of the community and a democratic society to ensure that our institutions are upheld. And the one way that it needs to be upheld is that the public understands what defense counsel do. So um, I'm sure you've heard from so many people, how can you defend this individual? <laughs> how do I sleep at night? <laughs> how do you sleep at night? Well, if you're uh, working all night, you're not sleeping. But well, I usually <laughs> stay in the fetal position. That's how I sleep at night. Um, no, I, I think that the first thing you do when you, when you get a file of this nature, whether it's you know a serious project case, murder, whatever, whatever the case may be, the first thing you have to do is distill the disclosure. Figure out what the Crown has that's related to your client. Figure out you know, what information they have. Some clients are in a rush to tell you their side of the story. I slow that down really quickly. I just need to review the disclosure first and then we work through it together. Uh, some clients truly don't understand why they've been charged. You know, I think the public has this perception that anyone charged must be guilty. And, you know, we as defense lawyers know that's not the case and it can never be the way that you approach a case. So, so many times uh, I found in my own career that, Truth is stranger than fiction, <laughs> and and our ability as defense counsel to withhold judgment and realize that we don't wear a red sash, and uh, it allows us to help our clients a little better. But uh, you talked about you know understanding what the disclosure is when you have a homicide or a, a large project. Um, that disclosure could be massive and can take a long period of time to obtain. Uh, a sufficient uh, uh, understanding of. How do you deal with disclosure in these large projects? So most jurisdictions, I think every jurisdiction I've dealt with, uh, other than <laughs> will actually give you a summary. They'll give you a crown narrative. They'll give you, you know, a, a really fulsome summary that will list the names of the key witnesses. So then you have the key witnesses that the crown is going to rely on. You can listen to those. You know, the witnesses that will help you build a defense, you can listen to those as the case goes, you know, proceeds. But you want to know what the Crown's case is at the outset and certainly before the judicial pretrial. So I try to rely on the summary first. Uh, phone records are obviously key. Forensics are key. I think the more you do these, the more you're able to figure out, you know, really what is the most important elements of disclosure, right? If if this is a, a situation where cause of death is an issue, the first thing you want to look at, of course, is the autopsy reports. We, we, let me look at the photos. What does this actually show? Um, and I think photographs often tell us, you know, a better story than any witness could. So if I get disclosure on a murder, for example, and there's two or three live witnesses, but there's photographs of the scene, I'll start with the photos because then it helps me picture what the witnesses are saying happen and decide whether or not that's actually something I can rely on. The charter has to be, uh, you know, a priority for us all to recall and remember and ensure that your client's rights are protected. And I know it varies uh, depending on uh, the particular unique circumstances of any investigation. Um, but I know that also with drug cases, as opposed to uh, uh, large projects that might have wiretap or part six authorizations, or as opposed to murder trials, um, the looking at disclosure and trying to distill them for whether there are charter breaches themselves seems like a separate task. Is it a separate task? So, I mean, with every drug case, the question is, you know, where are the drugs located? And immediately, when I know where the drugs are located, I know whether or not there's a charter issue, right? I think that that's something you distill very quickly. I think in murder cases, the charter 
is sort of secondary because it's not often the case that that will make or break the case. So as you're reviewing the various, you know, pieces of evidence, certainly if the client has made a statement to police, the charter factors in as you're watching it, you have to think, you know, the first time I pop in a statement from a client or a statement of an accused that's, you know, giving a statement, my mind is racing. Is there a charter issue here? Let's see what happened in the moments or hours leading up to the statement uh, that could be used to assist us in excluding this statement ultimately at trial. Um, so I think it's fact specific on the case, but you know, when someone comes to see me and they have drug charges, the first question I ask is where's is the drugs located? Were they in the car? Are they in the trunk? Why were the police in the trunk? Why are the police looking in your pockets? Right? These are questions that automatically come up before I even look at the disclosure. It's really at the outset of the case. What are we dealing with here? So on large projects, um, what's the largest size of data or bits that you received on a hard oh, drive? Geez, and I what does that translate know. into if you were to print everything out into bankers' boxes of materials? I don't know. For large projects, I've had two or three hard drives. Right now, I have a three accused, three deceased murder out of Brantford that's eight terabytes of information. Uh, it's so big that we, the, the Crown won't keep sending us disclosure. We have to send back our eight terabyte hard drive for them to reinstall uh, because it's just too much data for them to even provide a new one. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's limited time. There's limited resources, whether you're privately retained or if you're uh, uh, retained by a client using legal aid. It's how do you protect your client's interest when you have to ensure that you have to work efficiently, but you have to see everything and you have to know everything that's in this in the disclosure package. How, how do you go about it so that you can ensure that your client's interests are protected? So it's a question of organization and priority. So at the outset, you know, preparing for the judicial pretrial requires me to have a real grasp on the Crown's case. I don't necessarily have to have a real grasp on my defense yet. I have ideas of what I think, you know, where I think the matter will go for trial. And as we move towards the preliminary hearing, those will solidify, which will, of course, require all of the witness uh, and all of the video statements and all of the, the surveillance video to be reviewed. Um, but, you know, you have to prioritize what's going to trial, which needs the most amount of detail and attention now. And what can I, you know, gloss over in order to get a handle on the case at the outset? Um, and once you have a snapshot of what the case is, you know who the essential witnesses are and you know uh, who instead speaks perhaps just to motive. Motive doesn't matter if we're just going to, you know, have a preliminary hearing. It could matter considerably for a trial. So I think it's a matter of being able to understand um, first of all, the law and what possible defenses are open. You have to understand where and how the charter might apply, uh, especially when you're determining whether or not this is a matter that should just go right to trial or whether or not you want to have a preliminary hearing. Is that helpful? Um, and so it's a matter of organization in advance. You have to think as you're reviewing what is a priority here. So if it's not a case that's heavily driven on surveillance video, then I don't need to review every single moment of surveillance video to prepare for the JPT, right? Yeah. I have to do that for the trial. Certainly before a client's going to testify, I need to know absolutely everything that exists in the file. But you can just distill it to a snapshot 
And if you are familiar enough with the law and familiar enough with the way this works, you can still estimate how long your prelim is going to take. I really want to walk through now your thought process during different phases of a criminal file. You know, from the investigatory phase, should you already uh, be retained in providing advice while you know your clients uh, under the suspicion of a homicide or a large project uh, uh, type of offense, right through to the bail, pre-trial, judicial pre-trial, prelim and trial. So can you give us some uh, idea of what you're thinking and what advice you'd give to other lawyers? For example, if you've been retained by someone, they're being investigated on a, on a homicide and uh, they've come to you and, and, and want some advice. Can I swear on this podcast? You can swear. You can do whatever the fuck you want. So good. Because if someone's being investigated for a homicide, the only advice I give them is to shut the fuck up. And that advice is free. <laughs> I don't charge them for that. Okay. Uh, there is nothing for them to do. Nothing for them to say. Don't talk to anyone. Don't start hiding your shit. Don't start burying your gun somewhere. Um, if you're being watched, you just need to accept that you will not do anything to interfere with that investigation. If the police have honed in on you and they want to arrest you, you can't prevent an arrest. And that doesn't that matters not with what you're charged with, quite frankly. Um, so all of my clients, for example, if they call me during the course of an investigative detention, I tell them you will not talk your way out of an arrest. I promise you that. So just don't say anything. Don't tell them what your favorite color is. Don't tell them what color the sky is. They can look up and they can find that out. Don't say a word. Um, and sometimes they listen, which is always helpful. And other times you get the disclosure. And on the disclosure, in their video statement, you can hear them saying, my lawyer's going to kill me when she sees this. <laughs> um, it's, you know, you know it's, it's going to turn bad after that. So, no, I don't charge for consultations either. I tell all of my potential clients I'm interviewing you as much as you are interviewing me. I'm in a point in my career that I don't need to represent everyone that walks through the door. Uh, there are people who I find rude. There are people I find arrogant. Uh, there are people that need far more hand-holding than I'm prepared to give. And so I don't charge anyone for an initial meeting because I'm, I want to see whether or not I even want the case. And I don't think it's fair to charge people then to say, you know what, I don't want to help you and I'm just going to keep your money. Like, I don't, I don't like that. So assuming the client actually took your advice right. and doesn't say anything <laughs> yes. to the police, doesn't describe what the clouds look like right. on a particular day, yes. but the police have reasonable problem grounds and yep. they actually arrest your client yes. and your client's uh, now in custody and there's going to be the need for uh, judicial interim release. What is your approach to bail? Do you rush to do it? Do you take your time? How do you set it up so that you're ready to go and what's your strategy? Is there any information gathering needed? Is there anything you can do? Uh, with the officer in charge or with the Crown's case that can help you in the long run? So for murders, I tell clients that I'd like to at least get the initial disclosure. Sit tight, and maybe it takes four or five months. Um, but it's really important to get a decent handle on the case above and beyond like just the boilerplate synopsis because oftentimes, you know, there's something buried in the disclosure that will be helpful. So for example, I, you know, I have one client right now that's charged with a shooting. This snapshot of this, the Crown's case really implicates him horribly, except when you list, when you read the witness statement, the only witness to the actual shooting describes the shooter in a manner that does not at all represent what my client looks like. The height, the weight, tattoos, like literally the entire appearance is wrong. Um, the estimated age. And so had we rushed to bail on a case like that, you know, before receiving that witness statement, 
the client would have likely been detained. And now we're in a position where maybe with this information, it will certainly change things for him. You know what I find is a lot of young lawyers don't realize that on the most serious type of offenses, you can get bail. Oh, yeah. I know that on almost every homicide that I've uh, acted on, we've been able to obtain bail. And it makes the world a difference. And I want you to be able to share with the listeners here how important it is to have somebody out of custody while you're preparing trial as opposed to someone in custody because in custody can present challenges. Oh, my God. It makes a world of difference. Just to be able to have them in your office, you know, whenever anyone's in custody, they're not able to present as they want. They're not comfortable. There's always this element of can the guards hear me? Can the inmates walking by hear me? Like no matter whether you're in that private interview room, it doesn't quite feel private, right? You've got cameras that are looking in on you. That's for everyone's safety and I understand it, but I certainly would rather prepare someone, especially if they're going to testify. You know, I've had clients when they testify on a murder, you're working with them for 40 or 50 hours. I don't want to spend 40 or 50 hours sitting in a jail interview room, and quite frankly, neither do they. Maybe something comes up and you don't have that piece of disclosure available to you, whereas when you're in the office, you're like, hang on, you're saying that's where you were, but I think I have surveillance video that's just otherwise. So I think we should take a look at this again and you know, refresh your memory. Um, so to be able to have full access to the disclosure, to be able to work with someone for four or five hours sometimes, right? You can't do that when you're in custody. You've maybe got 45 minutes, an hour at most, that you can meet with someone who's in jail. And, and I'm glad how you, you've explained it's going to take 40, 50 hours in, oh. in a case to have your client ready to testify. And it may be that you've prepared them. Right. And they may give you different instructions, but at least you've done the work, right? And then you're able to to deal with it and, and get whatever instructions signed that you need to get done. But everything is about preparation. And so um, you get your client bail. Okay. And now we're moving forward to your first meeting with the Crown Attorney. And you're dealing with the nicest Crown Attorney in the province of Ontario. And they're very reasonable, but they have to do their job. And so they're doing it in a dispassionate fashion as a quasi-minister of justice, as public interest to proceed. And there's... Uh, you are uh, so optimistic, my and, goodness. And there, there's what they believe is reasonable prospect of conviction. So how do you approach the first pretrial with them? And what strategies do you start to develop? So... Without giving away... I, I just want to backtrack. No, there's no trade secret. I just want to backtrack. For, for bail, as much as I slow things down on a murder, I generally rush them on on a drug case. Okay. Right? The case isn't going to get better if my client's got an ounce of fentanyl in his underwear. Okay. Right? Like, there's just certain things that I can't get around. And so I think, it, it, you know, case to case, um, if there's one thing that I absolutely hate and I have clients call me all the time, they say to me, you know, what if we lose at the bail stage? And I hear young lawyers who are like, no, I'm not going to bring bail. He's probably not going to get out. Oh. That drives me crazy. There is no downside risk to bail. If you lose, you're in custody. If you don't try, you're in custody. There's really, you know, you lose a little bit of money paying for the bail hearing. That's it. And if you're successful, I mean, it really makes all the difference in how the case is going to unfold. So it's something that I explained to people from the outset. Bail is probably the single most important stage before trial. Um, okay. That's my little no, that's on bail. There's no downside risk to running a bail here. A lot of times ever. people don't realize how important bail is. And so now that you've gotten your client bail, um, the next part of the process is having a pretrial discussion with the Crown Attorney. Um, what's your strategy? So I, I have a list of the outstanding disclosure that I need in order to assess the case for the judicial pretrial. I flag what that is. 
flag that we need a judicial pretrial and move on. There's really, you know, in the case, murder's not resolving at the Crown pretrial stage ever. It's no, peace not, no peace bonds? No peace bonds. I've offered them. I knew, I knew you were <laughs> I good. have offered them. I really thought you could get a peace I bond. I have. I've, I've offered them. Um, I, I had a client once arrested on a second-degree murder, charged with accessory after the fact, and we resolved it on an obstruct for probation. That was a pretty fantastic result. Um, but no, no peace bonds yet. Um, but no, I mean, it's really, and the crowns know that too, right? Like if a crown's working on a murder, they're experienced enough, you know, when they're doing these large projects and there's like 50 different counsel that are like represented, nothing's going to happen unless the crowns know that this is a client who can be cut, you know? So maybe you've got like the wife of the kingpin that they're not actually going to drag through the mud. They may say, listen, with a stat deck, we'll let this go, but I tend not to get the wives or the girlfriends. I always get the guy that they're still proceeding on. I don't know how that happens. You're like a um, magnet. Tough cases I don't, Yeah, come I don't know you. what happens. I don't, I don't get the easy stat deck. So, so I typically don't have those types of, of crown pretrials. And the crowns know that. I know that coming into it. It's really just a formality that we need to get through in order to get our date for a judicial pretrial. And when you move on to a judicial pretrial, and let's say it's at the first instance, so you're in provincial court, What's your strategy? Are you going to keep the, the case downstairs if it's appropriate? And what makes it appropriate? Are, 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 are you going to want that preliminary inquiry in the limited circumstances where you're still entitled to it <laughs> and yet worry about uh, direct indictment coming down? Which is a huge worry now because my understanding is it's crown policy to deal with the backlog caused by COVID-19 by preferring direct indictments. And I think it's a real problem. Um, we don't have much grounds to challenge them. We, we really don't. It happens, you know, every once in a while. And I think I have, you know, one case presently that I might be able to, to successfully challenge if the Crown's preferred in direct indictment. Um, but I, I'm not sure what's going to happen in that regard. So the decision to stay in lower court versus high court uh, is most prevalent for me on drug cases. And quite frankly, it's an assessment of the jurists in the particular location that my client's being prosecuted, right? It's a question of, are there enough judges that I think are open to the prospect of a defense in this particular location that I could just take the matter straight to lower court? Um, there's very few drug cases, I think, that actually benefit from a preliminary hearing, unless, of course, you have you know, three officers arresting, three of them are going to say something different, and it will be helpful to the charter. So there are some cases where it, where it is meaningful, and that's really the assessment, right? My, you know, all of my drug work is private work, and so I sit down with the client and say, listen, this is what a potential prelim is going to cost you. This is the benefit. So there's a financial cost and a time cost, right? If you're going to prelim, you're adding an extra year onto the litigation. So... Is, is the client on house arrest? Is he wearing an ankle monitor? Will he really benefit from the prelim that it's going to make a difference at trial? Or am I just trying to squeeze out, you know, an extra fifteen twenty thousand dollars 20000 Because that isn't my practice. I don't have the time to waste doing prelims that actually won't have a meaningful result for the client where he walks out and says, I'm really glad we did that. Um, on the big cases like human trafficking cases, they should have a prelim, right? When you've got a complainant who your client says, listen, man, she is lying. I did not procure this girl. She wasn't trafficked. She wasn't being forced. Uh, those cases scream out for a preliminary hearing and that, you know, is worth it for the client. So it's always about weighing the cost and benefits to the client at the end of the day. 
I know a lot of lawyers who think, oh, I'm going to squeeze out as much money as I can. You're losing out in the long run, right? If you do a better job quicker, that client's going to tell 10 of his friends to come and hire you. And at the end of the day, you know, your gains in the long run outweigh that short term. And for preliminary inquiries where there is value, I know that you do what you have to do. Like you said, in a case involving human trafficking, it may be calling out for the need to ensure that you work through that preliminary inquiry, get people positioned, and 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 and, and you 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 pigeon them or pigeonhole them in a certain position that they can change, and you create the record that will help you at trial. Um, you know, one thing that's important, and I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. You said earlier the need for preparation, yeah. right? And I used to work at a place where it was policy to make no concessions. And it's very well known that this was the firm policy. No concessions, I have nothing to concede, which is ridiculous. They wouldn't even concede ID on a domestic. Like, we're talking no concessions. Uh, any young lawyer who's listening to this, don't do that. D judicial pretrial judges hate it. Prelim judges hate it. It's a waste of your time if you're arguing things like date, time, and jurisdiction on a murder, right? Like, we know when typically when the person died. So I think that it's really important at the outset to hone in on what issues are important for what stage of the litigation, right? Maybe you can have a preliminary hearing get conducted in, you know, three to five days if you really know what your issues are and what advantage you can gain for trial. Yeah. So I think that preparation from the outset is important so that you understand what concessions can be made and what you can really do to advance the client's case at each stage. And I know without speaking about the details that I happen to uh, participate in a project, although we had separate trials, uh, and I was able to see how you conduct yourself uh, during a judicial pretrial, dealing with relevance, trying to hone down on what is the exact thing that's going to walk my clients? And I know, in fact, because uh, I'm ordering transcripts from it, my trial still uh, to come, but the officers were challenged in uh, that trial and your client walked. And so I'm going to benefit from that work. But if I can pull you back for a sec uh, to asking uh, uh, about whether you would uh, stay in the lower courts or, or go to uh, high court or superior court of Ontario. Um, I know pre-C-75, I had no problem asking a pretrial judge saying, okay, give me one of these four jurists in this jurisdiction and I'll keep it downstairs because I had the power of giving up the prelim, uh, going to trial, being more efficient for the system. And there was a lot of cooperation. And a lot of the crowns would say, okay, if it's amongst this group of jurists, I'd be fine with that. Can you still have that power of negotiation or suggest that uh, during a pretrial to try to keep it downstairs if it's your choice to keep it in the provincial division? I'm not sure. I haven't found that it really has made a difference. Um, I don't know what COVID-19 is going to do to our power at all. Uh, it feels like these days we have none. It feels like, you know, the the Crown's union has really usurped the justice system, and I have no qualms about saying that. Having read the draft affidavit, they've now been circulating to try to thwart the July 6th opening of the courts. Um, so I'm concerned. I'm concerned that cases that ought to go to prelim are going to go away by way of direct indictment. Um, where justice will not ultimately be served for, for a number of reasons. If there's accused who should be discharged, they, they should be discharged. And I think that, you know, crowns should have the benefit of seeing how their witnesses perform and should have the benefit of seeing how the case will unfold. 
So I'm not sure whether or not we will have that bargaining power when we return to say, listen, uh, I'll keep this downstairs. Maybe so, because I understand that a lot of the superior courts are only opening up one courtroom where they'll have four or five in the lower court. It's, it's going to be an interesting time, and it's going to be interesting how the resources are going to be put into play and whether the crowns will be required as a policy to determine what is the priority. Right. Um, I would have assumed that uh, the priority would have been individuals in custody first uh, and then move to out-of-custody trials. I don't know what that it may be. It may not be. But uh, until there's a straight policy that's made public and transparent, we really don't know where it's going to be. And it's going to be interesting times. And there's going to be a lot of litigation arising out of it. I want to get to my favorite part of the process, <laughs> which is the trial. And, and we, we spoke a little bit about the preliminary inquiry, and I'll, I'll leave that for another day. But you're a great trial lawyer. Tell us what you love about the trial. So I love jury trials. For me, it's where the law meets theater. That's what the jury trial is for me. Every part of it is theater. You know, the juries are watching everything you do. It's not just in the closing. It's they're watching how you communicate with your client, how you communicate with the crown, when you interject and when you don't, right? When you interject, they think it's something important and things they may perceive as important may not be and they can gauge that by your reaction. And I think that uh, when trial lawyers recognize that the entire process is part theater, um, they start to do better. It's also where the most amount of preparation is required. You really have to know what every witness is going to say at any given time. And it's, it's really where you're putting your all, right? When I'm doing you know, a, a murder trial or a trial for a client who's facing a significant amount of time, when there's a lot at risk, I literally put the rest of my life on pause. Um, I don't you know, do much more than basic practice management. Um, I've taken on many cases in other cities where I've moved to the other city in order to be able to take care of the client better. Um, I have a huge practice in Hamilton. I, I now have property in Hamilton so that when I'm on these longer trials, I can live at a home within that city. Um, I've done the same for St. Catharines for Welland. So I actually like donate the, my time completely to that particular case because I think if I was on trial for murder, that's the level of dedication I want. I want a lawyer who's like razor, laser focused on my case. And so that's, that's what I do and it's what I, I like doing. It's, you know, you're taking someone through possibly the worst moment of their life, right? No matter what that person's done, they have a family. Uh, they, you know, even if they've been guilty of the offense in some fashion maybe it's different from what they're actually charged so for example they're charged with the first was actually a manslaughter maybe there's a self-defense element um maybe it's you know they're involved in a group wrong place wrong time like you know there's a hundred different ways in which someone can be facing a life sentence but doesn't actually deserve it and they've trusted you to get them through that um, so it's, it's that adrenaline rush. And quite frankly, you know, there's nothing like that feeling of knowing you're coming back into the courtroom, the jury has a verdict and you're waiting. It's like that, you know, 10 or 15 or sometimes 20 minute wait where, you know, the verdict's coming and, uh, adrenaline is just going through the entire room. It's not just you and yes. you can feel it. 
that for me, that rush is, is what keeps me going, right? I'm an adrenaline junkie. I always have been in every aspect of my life. And for me, you know, the murder trial is that. You know, these lawyers that have a practice that's based on guilty pleas, I don't understand it. I find them annoying. I find <laughs> it's like, oh, you need me to do what? No, I like I don't I don't want it. It's it's actually like bothersome to me. I'd rather oh, I, do anything. I really. won't talk to you about my last January <laughs> three or four pleas, but um uh, sometimes I'm guilty of that as well. But more important, because you talk about being an adrenaline junkie, and I know that I can be that, and our listeners can be that. Tell us some good war stories, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us. Something that's been part of a, uh, a jury trial or a homicide that, you know, everybody saw it one way, and then they realized, oh, my God, now I understand what Jordan has been saying the whole time. <laughs> uh, nobody ever admits that. <laughs> um, no, I mean I've had I've had some fantastic successes. The first murder trial I ever did was for a client that, on the face of it, you know, a lot of people thought was just this outright savage killer. It was his best friend of years. It was a single stab wound to the neck. Um, the knife was plunged in so deep that it left a mark from the hilt. So the entire knife just went, the, the level of rage required for that sort of injury um, was significant. And the Crown was just, you know, laser focused on this being a second degree murder, wouldn't entertain any other narrative. And so throughout the entire litigation, his main focus was his daughter. And we brought bail six months in. We got him bail. He he went. He was a model citizen on bail. He we loosened his conditions so that he could work uh, about a year in. Um, and when when he was acquitted of of the murder, even convicted of the manslaughter, it, you know we got him. I think it was like a four year sentence. It was on the lowest end of the scale because of all of the circumstances that had been surrounding the offense. And I knew that I was going to bring him home to his daughter. And that, for me, was the best feeling. Um, and he's never been arrested since. So he, he certainly did exactly what I had hoped, continues to keep in touch with me, sends me pictures. I mean, it's been years and still sends me pictures of his daughter to, to tell me that all of the hard work that I put in to help him through that, uh, and he had always maintained this isn't you know what happened. And, and it was a defense that I believed in, and I'm, you know, I'm forever grateful that I was able to uh, showcase that properly to the jury that they agreed. Um, so that was certainly, you know, one of the highlights. There's been cases where I didn't know what my defense was going into the trial, where I thought this was just like a dead loss. I had a client once that used his mother's car to commit a robbery on a convenience store with machetes, crashed the car, police found the machetes and the cash register from the convenience store. His co-accused ended up turning on him for, you know, a quote-unquote deal. Um, there really was not anything for me to work with, and yet somehow managed to convince the jury that there was reasonable doubt, and he walked out of jail after two and a half years, which was incredible. Um, and the case took so long because he had three previous lawyers, none of who would agree to take the case to trial. I said to him, I don't know what your defense is. He said, me neither, but I don't want to plead guilty. I've had lawyers convince me to plead guilty my whole life. Just take it to trial. And that probably helps me lead into my last question, <laughs> which is if you had the opportunity for two minutes to recommend to any young lawyer a new call um, about being involved in a large case or a jury trial, what would you tell them? <laughs> 
Oh my God, take it. There's, there's no better. It's where you're really a lawyer. You know, that is where real lawyering happens. It's where we get to change the law, test the law, refine the law. Guilty pleas do not do it. You know, these quick pleas, um, maybe once in a while, it's what's best for the client. And I get that. You know, it's not that I've never done them or never do do them. But, you know, it's only when it really is the best result for the client. Um, a criminal record is never an asset. We are defense lawyers for a reason, and we should be defending people, which means doing everything we can to get them through the system without a record or without contributing to their criminal record. So the Garage Series today was lucky to have you here. But I want everybody out there to know, like, you've stopped by to help with this podcast and this video cast, uh, but you do a lot of this. I, I share with everybody some of the... Uh, contributions you've given uh, for public service so you can get the message out there about how important it is to uh, help out uh, people as a defense lawyer that it's an honorable profession it is so i've been speaking about the profession and ways in which we can improve it and the ways in which society can understand what we do right we're not trying to get bad people back on the street we're it's, it's so much bigger than any one particular case. And so uh, in 2018, I delivered a TEDx talk called Two Judges the Judge. I speak regularly on podcasts and in various interviews. Uh, all of them are listed on my website, jhgcriminallaw.com. So anyone who's interested in understanding more about my practice or my philosophy can certainly reach me there. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, just under my name as a handle, Jordana Goldlust. And if there's young lawyers out there that need mentoring or say, hey, I got a client, uh, lawyers like us who've been around for a little bit, I've been a, I'm a little older than you or a lot older than you, um, it's the kind of bar that we, in the, that if you're in the courthouse and you say, hey, I don't know you, but uh, I got a question, can you help me for a minute? Um, that's something that we do. And so you coming here and helping us today is greatly appreciated. And thank you. Uh, that's thank you it. for doing this. Oh. Uh, before you cut out, I'm <laughs> going to thank you for setting this up. Uh, not for me. I, you know, this really is about the listeners. It's about young lawyers, people who want to be lawyers, young students who are really coming up and need some advice. And right now, especially with the courts closed and we can't wander through courthouses for people to stop us, um, this is really doing such a service both to the profession and to the community. So on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you as well. Uh, thank you, Jordana. Thanks.